0: Good morning, I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, November 8th. In today's news, a book by an anonymous senior administration official describes President Trump as cruel, inept, and a danger to the nation. A New York judge has ordered the president to pay $2 million for misusing charity money for his personal benefit. And Mike Bloomberg is filing paperwork today to run for president. But first, the big idea. The House GOP's emerging plan to save Trump is to turn the blame on three of his deputies EU Ambassador Gordon Sunland, personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani, and possibly acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. As Republicans argue that most of the testimony against Trump is based on secondhand information, they're looking to sow doubts about whether those three men were actually representing the president or freelancing on their own to pursue personal agendas. GOP leaders have decided to effectively offer up these three as the fall guys. That's what Republican sources in the Capitol are telling my colleagues Karun Demirjian and Rachel Bade. Their evolving strategy comes as House Democrats settle on their argument that Trump tried to force Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. To undertake two politically advantageous investigations as a precondition for U.S. military aid and a White House meeting between the two heads of state. Republicans, however, face several potential problems if they try to pin a quid pro quo on Sundland alone. Sundland testified that he assumed Giuliani was speaking for Trump when Giuliani told him the president wanted Zelensky to investigate. The Ukrainian energy company Burisma. But while Giuliani is Trump's personal lawyer, Republican lawmakers appear to think they can argue that he was somehow trying to make money for himself and his firm and not actually coordinating his shadow foreign policy with the president. House investigators have subpoenaed Mulvaney to testify today, but he's not expected to appear. And frankly, the more Trump allies on the Hill muse about throwing Rudy, Gordon, and Mick under the bus, the more likely they are to flip on the President, and more evidence continues to emerge of Trump's hands-on role in all of this, undercutting the emerging defense strategy. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, who oversees Ukraine policy at foggy bottom, testified under oath that Trump's demands for Ukraine came down to three words: quote: "Investigations, Biden and Clinton." The transcript of his deposition published yesterday afternoon lays out in perhaps the starkest terms to date Trump's shadow efforts to coerce Ukraine to open those investigations that would benefit him. Kent told investigators that Trump, quote, wanted nothing less than President Zelensky to go to a microphone and say those words, investigations Biden and Clinton. Kent said Clinton was shorthand for investigating not just Hillary Clinton, but also the 2016 campaign and trying to discredit the conclusion of the U.S. intelligence community that Russia interfered in that election on his behalf. Kent said his understanding of all this, though, came from Sunland, who told him that he was passing along what the president had told him. Kent is expected to testify in public and on camera next Wednesday, along with acting U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor. Trump responded to these revelations by tweeting that Joe and Hunter Biden must testify as part of the impeachment proceedings. And the State Department, for its part in this mess, has decided to scrap the position of U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine. That was the job held by Kurt Volker, the first senior official to step down in the wake of the impeachment inquiry starting. The responsibilities for this role will be divided up among several different people. This move leaves Kiev without a clearly designated U.S. diplomat to watch its back from Washington as Zelensky negotiates with Vladimir Putin to bring an end to the Russian-backed war in the eastern regions of his country. That five-year-old conflict, which began when Russia invaded Crimea, has killed more than 13,000 people. There's a human toll to this story. Current and former officials tell Foreign Policy magazine that the position was scrapped in large part because the Trump administration would be hard-pressed to find anyone willing to fill the role given how fraught working on Ukraine policy has become. No one wants to take on a job that might require them to spend six or seven figures on legal fees and risk being attacked by Trump and his merry band of loyalists. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as the week comes to an end. Number one, senior Trump administration officials considered resigning in mass last year in what they were calling a midnight self massacre. The idea would have been to sound a public alarm about Trump's conduct. Ultimately, they rejected the idea because they believed it would further destabilize an already teetering government. That's according to a new book by an unnamed author. In a warning by Anonymous, Obtained by the Washington Post ahead of its release, a writer described only as a senior official in the Trump administration paints a chilling portrait of the president. The author first captured attention in 2018 as the unidentified writer of a New York Times op-ed. This is the same anonymous person. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. But this person describes Trump careening from one self-inflicted crisis to the next like a, quote, 12-year-old in an air traffic control tower, pushing the buttons of government indiscriminately, indifferent to the planes skidding across the runway, and the flights frantically diverting away from the airport. The book doesn't go on sale till November 19th, but it goes after Trump hard on his morality and his intellectual depth and his fitness to be president. The author claims that many other current and former administration officials share his or her views. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham is calling the book a work of fiction and its author a coward for not putting their name on it. And the book also depicts Trump as making frequent misogynistic and racist comments behind the scenes. The author says that they have personally sat and listened in as Trump talks about the physical appearance of various women. He comments on makeup. He makes jokes about weight. He critiques clothing. He questions the toughness of women in and around his orbit. He uses words like sweetie and honey to address accomplished professionals. The author notes that Trump acts precisely the way a boss should not act in a work environment. In other words, he's a mad men president in the Me Too era. Number two. A New York state judge yesterday ordered Trump to pay nearly $2 million in damages for misusing funds from his tax-exempt charity. Trump took the charity's money to pay debts for his for-profit businesses, to boost his 2016 campaign, and even to buy a painting of himself. The judge's order settles a lawsuit filed against Trump last year by New York's Attorney General, Letitia James. It marks an extraordinary moment, the President of the United States acknowledging in a court filing that he has failed to follow the most basic laws about how charities should be governed. Previously, Trump has insisted that his charity was run perfectly, and said the suit was a partisan sham. But as part of the settlement, Trump has agreed to disperse the $1.8 million remaining in the foundation to a set of charities and then to shutter it for good. The president also agreed to submit to extra monitoring of any future charitable activities in New York State. If Trump ever joins a charity's board or starts a new charity of his own, that charity must fill a majority of board seats with people who have no relationship to Trump. It also must hire a qualified attorney, submit to regular audits, and agree to never pay Trump himself or his company for any services. Trump's three eldest children, Ivanka, Don Jr., and Eric, were also named in the original lawsuit because they were listed as board members at the foundation. In reality, the board did not meet at all for 19 straight years, from 1999 through 2018 the three Trump children were required to take an in-person training class on how to be a better board member as part of the settlement. As a history buff, my take on this is that it makes Trump much more likely to house his future presidential library and foundation in Florida. If he puts it in New York, he'd now face much more onerous oversight burdens, but it would also be harder for him to personally profit off the museum. The president also recently changed his residency from the Empire State to the Sunshine State, so it would make sense. Number three, former New York mayor Mike Bloomberg is making plans to enter the Democratic presidential primary campaign today. As one of the world's richest men, he would bring significant financial resources to his own campaign, but he'll also inflame the populist wing of the party that doesn't want billionaires to be the standard bearer of the Democratic Party. He plans to file paperwork and his dispatched staff to Alabama to ensure he can get on the ballot in a state that has a 5 p.m. Friday filing deadline. He's been calling top party officials to let them know of his plans, and he could give a formal speech kicking off the bid as early as next week. This can only be read as a rebuke of Joe Biden's flailing, struggling campaign, but it also reflects rising fear among the centrist plutocrat community of Elizabeth Warren. One of the driving reasons Bloomberg decided against getting in the race earlier this year, and he really wanted to, was he thought Biden was too formidable a contender to take on. But in the months since, Biden has been anything but. He's been overwhelming in the debates. He still is high in the polls, but he's being overtaken, especially in the early states. And he's struggling to raise enough money to mount a campaign that can go the distance. Bloomberg, who's 77 years old, has been outspoken in his opposition to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, especially their plans to raise taxes on extremely wealthy individuals like himself. Now, it's possible Bloomberg strategists say that he's not actually going to go through with this, that he's not going to enter the race, but he's taking steps to ensure he can be on the ballot so that he has the option. The Democratic field has winnowed recently from two dozen to 16, but Bloomberg's decision could open the door to others getting in as well. For example, we're told former Attorney General Eric Holder has not ruled out a possible entry, nor has Hillary Clinton If he does go through with this, Bloomberg has decided that he's going to go with an unorthodox strategy. He won't raise any money at all for his bid, which would preclude him from getting on a Democratic debate stage because the rules say you have to get a certain number of donors to qualify. And it's also very possible that he would decide to skip the first four voting states and place all of his emphasis on the Super Tuesday contests that are scheduled for March 3rd. That's when the race will become more nationalized and more expensive. You want to be on TV and all those places. Bloomberg could afford to do it. Biden might not be able to. Ironically, this news means that the last three mayors of New York have all had some role in the 2020 campaign. Bloomberg replaced Rudy Giuliani, who of course is at the center of the impeachment inquiry. And the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, is one of the Democrats who has dropped out recently. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, November 8th. Thanks so much for listening. I'm James Hellman. Have a great weekend. If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com podcasts.